The Fake Show podcast is sponsored by the law firm of Hutchison & Stephan, North 5th Brewing Company, Threads of Envy, The Tone Factory Recording Studios, Moonshot.com T-shirt designs, and by Mr. Antenna. Now your host, Jim Tofty. Danny Tedesco's latest film, Immediate Family, tracks the rise and collaborations of a group of legendary studio musicians through the 1970s and onward, chronicling their illustrious partnerships and their formidable record of hit-making. This era was the first time the names of these musicians would be listed alongside the stars like Carole King, James Taylor, Linda Ronstadt, Jackson Brown, and so many more. I've got filmmaker Denny Tedesco now from his home in Los Angeles. Denny, welcome. And the last time we spoke, you were just releasing your incredible documentary, The Wrecking Crew. As a matter of fact, I was it, whenever it pops up, I guess it's on Hulu and some other places now. Yeah. I can't help it. I gotta, I gotta it, look it, at it. It's again. so funny because we're, so many people say that, and it's really cool. It's like one of those movies where you cut pop in anywhere and just pick it up because of the music or whatever the storyline is. Yeah, you did such a great job, and it's kind of just a warm film anyway. What did you learn from that first experience? I know it took a long time getting it released and everything. What did you learn from that that uh, might help you out on this new one? Well, the new one, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, the first one that was, you know, I hate to say it when they all say labor of love, which means no one else came to help. Yeah. <laughs> it's like labor of love. Yeah, thank you. No, I get it. Um, the truth is all those donations on the first one, you know, we made the film, but we had to pay off that half a million. But all the donations came from real people. I mean, they were real people. They were you know, from $1 to $50,000. And that got yeah. us to be able to pay the half million after the film was made. So the next one, I saw the success of the film, not because it was me. It had nothing to do with me. A lot of it was luck. But I realized where people were responding to the film. It was the personal side of the story. That's a big thing. And I learned that now and everything I do now is try to, why, why relate to it? Why does the person doesn't play an instrument who is me relate to this person? Sometimes it's about family. Sometimes it's about careers. We all have the same insecurities. If you're probably Don Henley or Denny Tedesco, you know what I mean? I think we all have the same things. I think that's what I've tried to do on this next one is to, they're real people. You know, I'll give you a great example is when I interviewed Peter Asher, you know, the great comp- sure. you know, producer. Yeah. And Peter uh, produced, obviously, Sweet Baby James and, you know, and Linda and all the early stuff of James and, and Linda. And I said something to him about, you know, these legends. And he looked at me like I was nuts. He goes, they weren't legends. <laughs> they weren't legends when we started. Uh-huh. And they were just our friends. And I realized, oh, yeah. There always is a beginning for someone. Do you mean for me, they were legends because, you know, those albums I'm watching, you know, reading the credits. Well, those are their first albums. As long as you're on the subject of Peter, he was probably looked at as a legend as he went into the studio with them, right? Being where he came from. I think so. Yeah, probably. Yeah. yeah. And then I think his his career. Right. If you take Peter Asher out of this picture literally lift him out and say, oh, there was never a Peter Asher. All music changes. There might never be a James Taylor because it was Peter that discovered him at Apple when he knocked on his door that yeah. Peter, you know, Danny Kutchmar gave him his number, said, my friend lives in uh, London. Why don't you check him out? Say hello. 
and not knowing that he just started Apple working with, you know, there and James was their first act. Yeah. You know, you yeah. take, you know, then, and then Peter comes to LA and hooks up with Danny, who's old friend, you know, and all that starts happening. James goes on the road and brings Carol King on the road with him. And he kind of forced her into, you know, sing some songs sometimes in the tapestry cups, <laughs> uh-huh. you know, which is Lou Adler's thing. And, but then, you know, I mean, you just take one guy out of the mix, things change. You know, I'm sure they'll find their way, but you don't know. Yeah, one I mean, thing. Can you imagine James and Linda were both on Time Magazine? I just thought about it just now. One thing leads to another, that's for sure. By the way, your voice as narrator in the, on the Wrecking Crew film was fantastic. Was that something you had always planned to do, or were you thinking of getting no. someone else? No, no, no. It's so funny you said that. I laugh. I'll tell you two reasons. Um, all right, so when we cut 20 minutes of the film, you know, my editor Claire and I were cutting, and we showed it to our friend uh, Grady Cooper, another editor slash director. And Grady looked and he goes, why are you guys cutting like this? I said, what do you mean? He goes, there's 10, 20 editors in this in this building that could do the same thing. You have something that we you're not touching. You have the, you have a relationship with the story, yeah. and you're not going there. I said, and I said, I don't want to go there. As soon as I, I my my ego was saying, don't do it, don't do it. And the reason I said my ego is, I wanted to be known as the director. I don't want to be known as the son of. Yeah. So as soon as I knew, and he was right. He goes, and I changed. We started playing around with it. Okay, we'll start with the narration at the beginning. Da, 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 da. This is my father and his extended family, the wrecking crew. And that, you know, and so I was able to pop in and out. But what it allowed me to do is tell a different story versus being the third person telling that story. Do you know what I mean? I'm just step back. And that allowed the audience to go a whole different, again, I had no idea how they would react, and they did because they all had fathers and mothers. They some of them have lost them. Some of them are about to lose them. Some of them, you know, are relating to my father because they're at their end of their careers, or maybe they don't have much time. Do you know what I mean? So it was all relatable. So that was a uh, a suggestion by someone else, and I, we took it and ran with it. You know, it was great. It worked out perfectly. It reminded me, Danny, of of the, uh, I don't know if you've seen, the Cow Sills family band. Oh, yeah, 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 very much so. Yeah, and how yeah. One, one of them did the narration. It, it almost yeah. lends so much It lends so much heart because you are as close as you are to it. Oh, yeah, and absolutely. The, I, we were la- I laughed last, the other day, my wife and I were talking about this. We were friendly with uh, David Duchovny at the time. Yeah. And my sister-in-law managed him and she sent the, you know, the film over a rough to him. And you know, probably it was more than a rough, but it was, you know, it was there. And he said, oh, I love this. I, he goes, I'd love to do the narration for you. It's like, what? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> I don't know. If maybe did he, I know he loved it, but did he see it or how does he get to do that? Yeah. So... I would love to kid him about that part. That's so great. Um, By the way, for those who don't know, who are the guys who are referred to as the immediate family? Who are those musicians? So immediate family, well, let me tell you uh, briefly how I found out about it, because my producers came to me 
and they were um, it was Greg Richling and John Sheldon and Jack Pike said to me, "Would you be interested in this in this project called Immediate Family?" And they said the guys and they have a band. And I knew all the guys. They're legends. There's Leland Scalar, the bass player. Yeah. Russ Kunkel, drums. Danny Cooch, Coach Mar on guitar. Wadi Wachtel on guitar. And they have Steve Fistel. I call him the, the fifth beater or the baby of the group who's uh-huh. like 65 years old. Yeah. He's, you know, he's there. So what Danny did is a few years ago, someone approached him to do a uh, – a band to go to Japan and they wanted to call the section, which was Danny's old band from the seventies. He said, no, nah, I don't want to do that. He says, I'll bring my guys. And they and said, well, what do you want to call it? He said, just call it immediate family. So a couple of few years ago, they start playing around town and having fun. It's all, it's like one of those kind of things where they're having fun and they start getting a buzz going around town. So when they approached me with this, I went, Oh, that's my hook. I said, there's two reasons why I like this this storyline. Obviously, all those guys are, like I said, the legends and you know names I grew up with. When you saw on the back of the uh, the liner notes, you saw these weird names, Cooch. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. That's you know Danny's nickname. You got Waddy. Who's Waddy Wattel? <laughs> you know Russ Kunkel. Well, is that real or is that his? You know, he's a drummer. Kunkel sounds like a drum. <laughs> you know, and then Leland Scalar. They just all of them had this, you know, they're just you remember them. And so I went into the meeting with the guys and I said, Hey guys, I love, you know, and I only knew Leland, was the only one I knew in person. And obviously they all knew my father, Tommy. Uh, you know, and so there was some trust there. And I pitched him my idea. And I said, The reason I like this story is why it's kind of the same of Wrecking Crew, but it's it's a big change. Yeah. And I said, the, the, here's the two links. I said, I said, one, when in Wrecking Crew, I asked Lou Adler, I said, Lou, what happened when you did Tapestry? Did you make a conscious decision to use new musicians to get a new sound? And he goes, no, not at all. And he goes, Carol King brought her own friends in. She brought in Leland, I mean, brought in Cooch and brought in James Taylor. Yeah. So, that was my okay. Now I'm, you know, that's the start of the singer-songwriter era, in a sense. Yeah. And then uh, the other thing is them having a band called Immediate Family. I said at the beginning of the film, I in my voiceover, I said, "This is the story of my father and his his extended family, the Wrecking Crew." So in a sense, those are kind of a link there, you know. But from there, it changes. You know, technology changed in seventies. These guys are going on the road. They're different. They're they're recording the these you know these albums taking two three maybe a couple months to record an album, then taking it on the road to support it. Wrecking Crew guys never did that. You never would leave town. Why were those guys heading out on the road? Is is it was because touring had become a little more sophisticated than back in the sixties and yeah. one of those things. I think at the here's the my belief at the beginning, just to say the first tours, I think the guys are still, and maybe I'm wrong on this. I could ask the guys, they might all four of my five of my have different impression, but I think in 1971, when they're going on sweet baby James album, I know for Leland, he was, you know, he didn't do the album, but he went on tour. He came out of college. Yeah. So he comes out of college, you know, for a month, I'm going to take a month off. He never went back. 
Wow. So he does this, you know what I mean? So they're at the beginning of the career still. Sorry to interrupt, but how yeah, does yeah, 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 James Taylor discover this college kid, Leland Sklar? Oh, that's great. It's Well, it's in the movie. <laughs> <laughs> um, it yeah. Basically, Leland was in a band. He's in a local band, and then he, uh, James went to visit a rehearsal of these guys, you know, yeah. friends of friends or whatever. And he, he sees Leland and he tells Peter Ash, I've met the bass player of my dreams. Yeah. So that's how that happens. Uh-huh. But, uh, you know, you already, so the band Leland's joining is Russ, Danny and Carol. Yeah. Carol's a side man at this point for them. Because Danny brings Carol in to James, and she goes on the road with him as a pianist. Like you said, I think you alluded to it earlier, that she needed maybe a little bit of coaxing to do some of her yeah, own singing. It, yeah, it is really funny because there's so much, it, it, even with James, like I, I think at the beginning, I don't know, but it, I don't want to say insecurity, but to feel like James didn't want to call his the flying machine. He wanted to call James Taylor and the flying machine instead of just James Taylor. Yeah. So this, for me, I think there's always that feeling of having that support, but for Carol, she was always a writer and she never, I think, you know, it took her a while. And, and she said, there's a great, great uh, part in the movie. I love is Carol talks about how James, you know, they, she would open up for James and, and it was like at the Troubadour, and she's really nervous. And and then Danny and the guys start talking about how um, owner of um, of uh, Troubadour, mm-hmm. he comes on the mic and says, ladies and gentlemen, I'm, I'm sorry, but we have to clear the room. There's been a bomb scare. Like someone called in some bomb scare. And Carol goes, in her interview, she goes, Wow. She goes, the first thing that came out of my mouth when I heard that was, well, I'm just as long as it's not me. <laughs> she was so paranoid. She was the bomb. So, so I love these guys. I love her. I love them all. Because, they, again, as much as we think, you know, some of them are just, you know, they just go out there, knock it out, no problems. But they all have certain things about them. Yeah. Even as much as he could play his ass off, he still feels uncomfortable when someone compliments him he doesn't feel he deserves it and i always wonder a guy who's got that letterman-esque type of a beard do you think he's hiding behind that in oh some my way God, absolutely uh-huh. and it's in the movie guys i brought yeah. that up as well in the movie and it's a great line. It gets, I won't say it but gets a laugh every time i mean um, and, and to look at this whole this whole scheme and this map of who played on what, like everyone else, I knew these guys without even knowing it because they were on all these albums, Carol King's Tapestry, Jackson Brown's Running on Empty, Warren Zevon's Excitable Boy. Are there hundreds or are there thousands? I mean, (laughs) I kind of lost track. Well, I mean, it's funny. Here's the, there's another difference between what happens with these guys. As much as they're recording, they're they're touring as, as well. Yeah. So in a sense, they're not, you know, when I did a good example, Wrecking Crew, I had hundreds and hundreds of songs probably to choose from. Yeah. Not all of them great. <laughs> you know, some of it mm-hmm. was, and that was the thing I used to say, the Wrecking Crew did a lot of, it was a factory here. You know, you went to work, you didn't know what you were recording, who you were recording with. It could be Beach Boys or it could be an instrumental group like the Marquettes or Sinatra or whatever. 
and some or commercial, and some of it you did you just knocked it out. You had three hours, boom, 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 boom. So there was a lot of quantity there. And with these guys, things slow down. The business slows down. So, I mean, I have ninety songs in there, and yeah. I think you probably know eighty-eight. Sure. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, other than that, I mean, there's still more songs we could have chosen that were, you know, it, it, the greatest thing is listening to these albums again, like in research, and you go, wow, I don't remember that song. That's an awesome song and on the B side of the album. With few exceptions, like you say, the Wrecking Crew guys stayed in the studio and they made good money. Yeah. Um, there were exceptions, though, like Larry Nectel, who actually toured with Bread for a while and, and uh, right. helped. But what, happens at, or so, what happens at that point, when Larry's going out in the seventies, things are changing now. Yeah, you don't, you know. I mean, the Joe Osborne, you know, I think start he, you know, as much as you know, he was in demand. A business change. I think he went to well, eighty. I think he went to like Nashville. My father, he's a, it, you know, he's not doing pop records at that point. He does, you know, a few Kenny Loggins or Stephen Bishop albums as a specialist, but he's gone to film and TV. Um, how Blaine goes on the road with John Denver. Things change, and that the the road thing was acceptable. When you never went on the road in the '60s, it, it's for two reasons. Why you're working so much? I mean, they used to say you couldn't judge a person by how much work he was doing during the week. You could only judge how much he turned down. You know. So my father would write in the book, who called just in case. You know, if this other one falls apart, hey, I'll call and see if he still needs someone. You know, and because and so then, so you never left town because you leave town. There's eight guitar players that are going to take that. You know, take a gig, and you know, yeah, it was psycho psychological. Did your dad? Do you do you think? I don't know if you ever asked him this, yeah. but did he regret not being able to go out and and tour with a band? Not at all. No. Not at all. Yeah. Yeah. No. That was, that was, you know, because he did it at the beginning of his career. You did it at the beginning. It's funny because right. there was a funny line. He said, I remember this now. He goes, you know, when you're the road guy, you're considered the road guy. You're not the guy in the record. And this is, you know, the 50s and 60s. So you never, you didn't have the respect. You could be, yeah, you could probably play, but they didn't trust you. So he, he goes, he remembers years later, you know, he was on the road maybe with Dean Martin for whatever in Vegas or something. And then years later, he's doing Dean Martin albums. And they looked at him like, like, I can't remember how it was, but they thought he was still a road guy. It's like, no, <laughs> you know, he had been on the road in, <laughs> in five, 10 years, probably. And at that point, you, my dad was such a businessman. He had, we had rotary phone in the house. He had an answering service where anybody could call to make sure that they could get a message to you. And, but at home, he made sure that there was never a business signal. You know, and for yeah. those that don't know what that is, <laughs> you know, you call and you can't <laughs> yeah. get through. Right. And so it was like a doctor's office. We had four lines, the first line and the second line. Wow. That was, then we had the third and fourth line for the kids. Meaning like, okay, if we gave them numbers, give them that number. Yeah. But there was never going to be a chance. So he'd walk in from work, from Hollywood to Northridge. And the first line that always came up was, any calls? It was just like saying hello. And it was any calls? No. And um, that meant 
did the service call. Or then, then they would always check the answering service constantly. Anything going on? Nope. But he, or they would catch something like he'd be at a break at, in the studio, let's say a gold store, wherever. They had phones set up to go call directly to the answering service. And breaks, they would quickly pay phone or whatever, call these guys, the answering service, and maybe pick up a gig that night because they just added a guitar player or they didn't need this or an overdub. Can you do it? Yeah. And that's how a lot of stuff happened. You interviewed such luminaries as Carol King, of course, Linda Ronstadt, and producer execs like Lou Adler. What did they have to say about these about these guys' immediate family? You know, so and you know this better than anyone. The hardest thing about interviews is not the interview, but getting past the gatekeeper. Do you know what I mean? You want to yeah. interview someone, you know, it's like he puts you, you know. There was no gatekeeper here. When when I met with the band and they said the next day, yeah, we're in, and Carol can do this in three weeks, I went, oh, my God. I was not prepared for that. Uh-huh. I, you know, it took me 19 years the first film. <laughs> so I thought at least had a few more weeks. And it went, okay. Uh, and I quickly started doing my studying and reading yeah, and, yeah. and listening and all that. You know, I, I gave him a pitch, but he still don't know it. I kind of learn on the as we go, sure. as always. But the quickness of the yeses, Linda, Lou, Lenny Worker, uh, you know Russ Tidelman, uh, yeah. um, you know Phil Collins and Jackson and James, all that happened within like two months. It was so fast because there was no question about it because they love these guys. There's another difference between them and my father. And uh, the Wrecking Crew. My father didn't have a relationship with with uh, Brian Wilson or any of the artists, for that matter. They might have had a great working relationship. Yes, but there wasn't that that brotherhood. My dad went to work for three hours work, or maybe six hours or ten hours for the day. Walks away. He's not hanging out with the fifth dimension. He's not. Hanging, they're not even there, by the way. Most of the singers were never at the studio. He, you know, so a lot of these artists, he's not going out and hanging. These guys are not just hanging in the studio for weeks at a time on an album in 1972, 73, whatever. They're hanging with them, and then they go on the road. They're in a bus together. So with Jackson Brown and Luna Ronstead touring together, you know, you got David Lindley, you got all these guys. They're, they become brothers. They're best friends. And Linda said it. We had nobody but ourselves. We had each other. I think it was you know, Linda like, uh, Linda, who said she always won at poker on tour because she was the only one who wasn't stoned. <laughs> oh, my gosh. She is so funny. Yeah. And she laughs. And when she – there's a great story in outtake. I just love it. It's She goes – see, there was these fairy um, – like a fairy hat or, you know, with a little antennas or whatever. She's wearing this silly like uh, costume or whatever. Mm-hmm. And so they're in a bus and they're in Detroit and the guy takes the wrong turn and he goes into Canada over the border. Now they got to turn around, come back through the, into the States. Now everybody panics, she says, because <laughs> everybody's got thousands of dollars of drugs uh-huh. and they're throwing it all out the window in Canada before they get to the <laughs> And she's laughing, telling the story. And she goes, and she says to the 
the tour manager goes, my brother was a cop in Tucson. I'll talk to him. I know how to talk to him. I know how to talk to cops. Uh-huh. He yeah. goes, no, you're not. Not in that outfit. <laughs> <laughs> um, like you say, they had such great camaraderie with the stars that Jackson Brown said he wanted to record an album on the road, the result being Running on Empty. And what, what yeah. it was, Korchmar, Sklar, and Kunkel who played on that? Yeah, and, and, uh, and Dergy, Kirk Dergy. I loved what you did in the Wrecking Crew uh, film where the musicians sat around a table and reminisced and busted each yeah. other's chops. Do you do something like that in Im- the immediate family? Absolutely, absolutely. It's it's become my little thing now because I love for it. me I want to be a voyeur. Let them tell the story. They'll, they'll, I, this is how I grew up basically because I didn't go to work with my dad. I didn't go to see him play instruments. Yeah. He didn't play live until 1978 or 77 when I was a kid. I never saw him play live. So all I saw were musicians around a table eating pasta or gambling, razzing each other and kidding each other, and we'd laugh. You know, and, you know what I mean? It was, yeah. that's how it was. And so the first time I put them in the wrecking crew at that round table, it was based on Broadway Danny Rose, where I remember who was a real low end manager and these other managers and agents were at a coffee shop talking history about him and they would just laugh and blah, blah, blah. I thought that's exactly what I grew up in that world. So when I set that up with the first guys, I thought, oh, this is, this is great. And I do it on most of my time, most of my projects. So I just, I want them to tell the story without telling me. The um, immediate family has an album out. It's great. I've heard it and they're working on another. Yeah. And, and like playing yeah, live. It's coming out. It's coming out in December. It's an LP and it's great. And one of the songs that they wrote for the, uh, it's going to be their single is called skin in the game. And they wrote, basically the song for the movie, you know, still having skin in the game. That's really cool. It's it's really cool, you know, be able to take, you know, them like Leland and Russ. I just came back with Russ from a screening back east in Virginia, and I've been without Leland a few times out there. It's so nice to see them get love for who they are, not for their music. They come down and they're stars and they, they get, they could feel it. You know, I remember seeing a text from Russ to all the guys with us, and in Russ, we were in Boulder, Colorado, with 880 people sold out. And he said to the guys, "You remember that concert we did? It was just like that. You know, whatever. You know, he was comparing it, that feeling to a concert." And I went, wow, that's pretty cool. There was this whole, Denny, this Laurel Canyon sound that, uh, and as a matter of fact, I interviewed the late, great David Crosby right before his passing, and everybody seemed to know and play with him. It's almost like it was a six degrees of separation. He is another link, and it's really, so here's the other, you know, which we didn't get into, which is, because I don't have time in the film, but Russ's connection. You know, his first wife, Leah, was Mama Cass's sister. So they lived above Mama Cass's garage, you know, the guest room. And so all those people are coming in. Joni, Neil Young, all those people are coming in, playing and playing, hanging and playing. And so, again, it was sharing ideas, having fun, probably smoke a lot of pot. And just, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just, you know, it was about music, something that, it's harder to do these today. You know, it's easier to make an album than ever, but think about how I got to get the guys together to rehearse. In those days, you kind of all hung out and played. Now kids, 
they play, you know, or people lay down the track or a pretend bass track, and then they bring in Leland. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They, yeah. they, but not this band. I mean, they all play together when they record. That's what's missing today. Yeah, everybody's on a laptop and a mixer, and it's yeah. it's a totally different scene. By the way, some of the most touching scenes in the Wrecking Crew film were your lovely mom commenting about your dad. You could just feel the love and and vice versa. I mean, they had one of those long-lasting marriages, which which wasn't happening with all the Wrecking Crew members. No. And it's so funny that, you know, after dad passed, you know, you kind of, she kind of rewrites history of how lovely it was. <laughs> oh, <well. laughs> really? no, because you know, they were like, two, they were two Italian kids yeah. when they got married and they did last. His family meant a lot to them. And it's funny because there's a point in this film, Russ talks about it. You know, Russ talks about being on the road. You know, you don't get those moments back with your kids. And you know, I think all these these films that I, I'm doing, I always have to find that for me. Maybe it's just me. Maybe I've got some psychosis, but no, I really believe that what makes it work it brings us all. It, it we all have good or bad. You know that understanding of what it means to be family. It's funny because I'm doing my next film, which is Wolfman Jack. Nice. And we started. Oh, it's so much fun. And and, and my editor, who's much younger than me, you know, you know, these guys don't even know who he is. Wow. And he said to me, he goes, "Man, I am so digging this guy because we're looking at his home videos, and it's about family for him. He was married 32 years with the Wolf Woman, as he calls her. <laughs> uh-huh. You know, and you know, and then he passed away, but." It really is about, you know, that other thing. It's about what keeps you going. The Midnight Special and and American Graffiti. You started uh, touring immediate family to festivals, I think, last year. And in fact, at the the Woodstock Film Festival, it won Best Documentary Feature. I guess that says it all. How will people be able to find the film? So... Since we're just coming to the last few, you're going to Fort Lauderdale. I'm in Fort Lauderdale on the 8th, and then I think I'm in Whistler, Canada. Um, the film comes out December 12th around North America, and it'll be in theaters, like 100 theaters for some Great. some nights, one night. Some will maybe keep it on for a few days, and then on the 15th, it goes to video on demand. Um, we've won, as of today, 16 uh, awards, you know, which I'm thrilled about because, you know, I, I thank God, you know, and the other thing, I'm so happy that Magnolia has the film, you know, as a partner. They took, you know, Wrecking Crew and they, you know, did a great job with getting it out there. And I know they'll, and they're going to do a great job with this. But I still need, you know, people go, I tell people at the festivals, they don't believe it, but I said, if it wasn't for festivals, none of our films would ever get made. It's very few because festivals give us an opportunity to share what we did. Whether or not it ever gets further, you hope. And distributors but, are there, right? So you're, are, are yeah, you seeing yeah, people well, like that? Funny. There's, a, there's a few festivals, yes. You have the Sundances, you have Berlin, yeah. you have um, Toronto. If you don't get in those, when, you know, like we didn't get into Toronto, we didn't, we didn't try Sundance this year. But if you don't get into those, it's hard because it's so hard to get in. But also, that's where buyers are. So what do I do? I go to all of them. As anybody will take me, you know, we don't get accepted to all of them, but we did really well. And I made sure that I get 
those folks behind it. If they love the festival, I always start with this with the festivals. I tell people, I said, and it's true. I said, if, how many people, first time festival goers here? And, you know, maybe 20%, sometimes 50, 60% are first timers. I said, there are so many good films in these things, these festivals. Mm-hmm. Take advantage of it. You know, these are, you know, we're not talking about big metropolises of New York and LA and whatever. You know, it could be Tucson, it's Tacoma, it's Wichita, it's all over the country, you know. And I said, take advantage of the films that are coming through here because you might never see them again. I said, if you like a film, please tell people. That's how we get the buzz, is spreading the word. I said, you know, my goal is, I said, there's 250 of you in this audience. I said, there's 250 influencers out there. I know it's a bad word right now, Uh but it's not. That's word of mouth is what we need. So it's really important. And then I follow up with, I said, and if you don't like a film, don't tell anybody. (laughs) That's my goal. (laughs) I I can't wait to see it. It's Denny Tedesco's latest and greatest immediate family. Denny, I told you I'd only need you for 10 or 15 minutes for this interview. So you went away. I'm so sorry. You went way above and beyond. Don't don't get me started. Don't get me started talking. (laughs) I love this. I love telling their stories, their story. And I love seeing it. By the way, if they go to the website, and sign up. I'll let everybody know where it's playing in their na- neighborhood, and it's, it's, which is www.immediatefamilyfilm.com. But if you do immediate family, you'll get a marriage therapist, and that's okay too. <laughs> so, but you'll uh, see the outtakes as well. So please tell people. It's always so much fun to talk to you. I really enjoyed this as always. Uh, great catching up. Stay well and good luck with the film. I know Thanks, you won't man. need it. I'll see you soon. Bye-bye. And how about that? Denny's next film is going to be all about Wolfman Jack. I can't wait to see that one. That finishes this episode of the Fake Show Podcast. I'm Jim Tofty. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Listen to the Fake Show anywhere on SoundCloud, Stitcher, iTunes, and thefakeshow.com. Sometimes.